Oh God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. It was on April 16th of 1963 when Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a letter from the Birmingham jail. This letter was addressed to eight of his fellow clergy in Alabama who had recently called his nonviolent demonstration in Birmingham unwise and untimely. Now in his lengthy response, Martin Luther King Jr. addresses this question of timing by saying, Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ears of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, and we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. Now, the ancient Greeks had two words for time. Both of them are present in our scriptures. We have chronos time, which refers to the chronological or sequential time. Chronos time is about order, things unfolding in a logical manner. This happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. Kairos time is something different. Kairos time is about the right, critical, or opportune moment. Kairos time might create chaos, but it's believed that when things happen according to Kairos time, the time is right, no matter how illogical it might feel. And so rather than being wrapped up in Kronos time, Martin Luther King Jr. was focused on Kairos time the critical, right, opportune moment to challenge oppression, to take action for justice, to dismantle segregation. You see, the Kairos time for justice is always now. The temptation for those eight Alabama leaders is the same temptation that we face today. It's the same temptation that we see rise within the story of the Gospel of Luke today that we are tempted to draw that small circle and to say that justice can wait, or that justice can come now for some, for those who are inside the circle, but it's too soon to draw that bigger circle and work for justice for all. And yet Jesus' mission is about drawing that circle wide. And those of us who follow Jesus, like Martin Luther King Jr., have a mission of also drawing that circle wide. We have a mission of doing what is life-giving and healing for all. Now in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has a practice of teaching and preaching and worshiping in the synagogues. And very early on in the Gospel, we see how he enters the synagogue and then he stands up to read 
the scrolls of the prophet Isaiah. And in doing so, he declares his mission. And these are the words that he reads. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. You see, Jesus understands that his mission is one of including the excluded, of lifting up the poor, of releasing the captives, of giving sight to the blind, of letting the oppressed go free. He understands his mission to be one of giving life, drawing the circle wider and wider and wider. Now we can fast forward through time in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus is in another synagogue. He is on this occasion teaching on the Sabbath. And it must be this mission that he has in mind when he sees the woman who is bent over. Now this bent over woman is in a crowd of people. It doesn't say that she actually came to the synagogue that day for healing. It says she comes to hear the word. And, and she is gathered in the midst of this crowd of people who are there to hear Jesus teaching and, and to worship God. And Luke says that she has been crippled with this spirit for 18 long years. Now, not only has she bent over, but she is quite unable to stand up straight. And we don't know why she's bent over, but she is. And the text says that Jesus sees her. You know, I think we have to pause right there and to recall the radicalness of this. In this crowded room of people, Jesus sees the woman who is bent over. And I have to wonder from her own vantage point, what does she see? Does she see the feet of those around her? Does she see the dust on the ground? Does she even know that it is Jesus who is at the front teaching and preaching on this day? But Jesus sees her. And not only does he see her, but he calls out to her. And then he calls to her, and, she, and he says, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. And then he lays hands on her, and she stands up straight, and she begins praising God. Now, before we go any further in this story, I want us to look at it from a couple of different angles. Because the question of why she has bent over is an intriguing one, and it provides several interpretive lenses for how we might understand this story. Because it could be that she has kind of metaphorically bent over, that she's kind of maybe hunched over for some reason. And it could also be that she is very literally doubled over, bent over in a very physical way. Now, some translations say she is bent over because of a spirit of weakness. And this may lend itself to that more metaphorical interpretation. According to Francis Taylor Gench in the Gospel of Luke, salvation denotes participation in the reign of God. A possibility that involves liberation from anything that prevents one from living life as God intends. Whether that be demonic influences or disease or hunger or ostracism or attachment to wealth. Or, 
as some scholars propose, liberation from low self-esteem. You see, liberation, uh, low self-esteem is the spirit of weakness that we so often see diminishing and deforming the lives of young girls and women in particular, but not exclusively. There was a study uh, published by Real Girls, Real Pressure, a national report on the state of self-esteem. And one of the things that they found is that seven in 10 girls believe they are not good enough or do not measure up in some way, including their looks, their performance in school, or their relationship with family and friends. And unfortunately, this is not new. It has been a trend for decades. Now, feminist theologians have asserted that traditionally, we have characterized sin as self-assertion and self-centeredness and pride, which speak to the experience of the powerful. And that in this, those sins are appropriately addressed by a theology of self-sacrifice. But for this seven out of ten girls who believe they are not good enough, their sin is not being too self-asserted or self-centered or too prideful. No, their sin might be better understood as over-dependence on others for self-identity or fear of recognizing their own competence and confidence or even self-abnegation. And so in response, feminist Elizabeth Johnson says, in this situation, grace comes, not as the call to loss of self, but as empowerment toward discovery of self and affirmation of one's strength and giftedness and responsibility. Now, though statistically, girls and women may identify with this more, it is also true that boys and men can also struggle with low self-esteem. Both men and women can be bound by this crippling spirit of weakness, and it deforms and diminishes human life and prevents us from living as God intends. This weakening spirit is against God's will for us, that God did not design us to be people whose identities and convictions sway with the wind of those around us. God did not design us to be people who doubt our own abilities and gifts. God did not design us to be people who deny ourselves to the extent of losing ourselves. This kind of spirit of weakness is not of God. And that is why Luke says it is of Satan. And if this is the lens that we use for what is meant for the woman to be bent over, then when Jesus heals her, he is restoring her confidence in herself. He is restoring her assertiveness in her own abilities, restoring her pride in who she is. He is restoring her full humanity. And that empowers her to transform from one who is hunched over to be one who stands up tall and straight and proud. On the other hand, there are at least one other, if not many other ways, to interpret why the woman is bent over. But I want to propose just one more for your thought today. It could be that this woman is one in society who has done the back 
groundbreaking work for years and years and years. Author Megan McKenna writes about how when she was in Japan, she kept noticing on the buses and public transportation that there were these older women and men who were so stooped over. And whenever they got on the, the buses, people would clear the way for them and make a place for them to sit. They were so stooped over, they couldn't stand up straight. And later on, she realized that these were the farmers who had grown up in the rice fields and spent their whole lives bent over, picking the produce. And if this is the lens that we use, then this woman is one onto whom society has heaped an unfair share and burden of physical and manual labor. That she has bent over that day in the synagogue because she has spent too many years bent over a stove or a field or babies to stand up straight. That that repetitive work that she has done for a lifetime has made its mark on her body. The work that life has handed her has not been life-giving. It has prevented her from living as God intends, and therefore she needs to be liberated from it. And so then the question turns toward us, who are those in our own society who are bent over due to, to the hardest physical labor among us? What about migrant workers who stoop over day after day picking our produce? Or low-wage earners who do repetitive tasks in factories bending over machines as they work? Because in this interpretation for Jesus to heal the bent-over woman so that she can stand up straight, it means a, a reordering, a disordering of the imperial powers that make such dynamics possible. It means that Jesus is turning the world upside down, changing the way that things work, changing the expected order, bringing the powerful down and the powerless up so that all have power. And it invites us to ask ourselves in our own society, what is it that burdens and cripples bodies? How are we complicit in human suffering? And how are we to work for justice so that bodies don't have to be broken and bent over? No matter the angle of interpretation that we take for understanding why this woman is bent over, what is clear in this text is that the time for healing is now. And Jesus intuitively understands this Kairos time about giving life. And how that may require breaking the laws or it may require a deeper interpretation of the law. In that same letter from Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King writes about this paradox that is at the heart of the civil rights movement. He says to those who oppose him, you express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern, since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools. At first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. 
One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. And then he goes on to say, now what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? And then he writes, to put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just, and any law that degrades human personality is unjust. In this text, we can see how there is that temptation on the part of the leader of the synagogue to, to draw that smaller circle, maybe even a medium circle, about who gets to be healed and when. Can't she just come back tomorrow? In fact, he says to everyone in the crowd, not even to Jesus, as if to tell them, don't come to the synagogue to receive your healing on the Sabbath. That's a small circle. In the same way Martin Luther King Jr. pushed against what he called the white moderate Christian, and he expresses their, his disappointment that they don't join in supporting the civil rights movement by drawing the circle wide. No, they draw those small circles. And in this text, Jesus is the one who is pushing back against the leader of the synagogue by asserting that even today on the Sabbath, especially today on the Sabbath, this woman deserves to be healed. Now, for the leader of the Sabbath, we have to give him just a little bit of grace. Because it is his job to make sure that the Sabbath is observed. And so, in a way, you can't fault him for his indignation. But the problem is that he's simply making an interpretation at face value rather than thinking deeply about what the law says. And Jesus goes deep into his Jewish roots to argue that what he has done is in fact a keeping of the Sabbath, not a breaking of the Sabbath, that it is following a rule that uplifts human personality. And his argument is that the reason he had to heal the bent-over woman right there and right then in this Kairos time is precisely because it is the Sabbath. And so I want us to look back at that commandment about the Sabbath in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your town. The Sabbath was a day for the Israelites to remember their exodus from slavery in Egypt, and so it was a day to give thanks for freedom and liberation and to extend freedom and liberation to others, and it was a day of rest from normal work. And so even though the leader of the synagogue addresses the crowds and not Jesus exactly, Jesus confronts him directly. And there are at least three things going on in Jesus' response to the synagogue leader. 
And so the first thing that we have to observe is that the rules about not doing any work on the Sabbath are inclusive of not just people, but also the livestock that the people own. And that's why Jesus makes such a big deal about the fact that everyone thinks it's okay to untie your ox or your donkey and to lead them to water on the Sabbath. The reason for that is that the ox or donkey needs to drink in order to be healthy and to have life. And so your work of untying it is considered life-giving and okay. It's acceptable work on the Sabbath. In this response, Jesus also uses this typical rabbinical move of, of taking a lesser example and comparing it to a greater example. That if it is okay, in fact, to release or untie the ox or donkey on the Sabbath, then it must be okay to release this human person on the Sabbath. This bent-over woman who Jesus now calls a daughter of Abraham. You see, this woman has just been lifted up by Jesus. She has been elevated when she is given this new name. Her stature has grown. But Jesus is placing her very squarely as one who inherits the promise that God gave Abraham of abundant life. And then that language about untying. Jesus uses the same language about untying or loosening or releasing for the woman as he does for the animal. This is not about taking the woman down to the level of the livestock, but rather to reinforce the concept of this lesser to greater technique. That if you find it to be life-giving work that is acceptable when it is directed toward the donkey, then how much more is it life-giving, acceptable work when it is directed to a human person, this bent-over woman who is a daughter of Abraham? You see, we can't just draw a small circle around doing what is life-giving for the livestock. We have to draw that circle wide to include the bent-over woman and all who are oppressed. Because untying and loosening and releasing is about bringing freedom and liberation to the woman, which is exactly, is exactly what the Sabbath is for. Isn't the pushback against working for justice so often about drawing a small circle and not recognizing the time? And yet Francis Taylor Gensch writes, Luke reminds us that nothing, nothing is more fundamental to Christianity than liberation, release of the captives. And so the question then turns to us, what about us? When are we tempted to overlook the one who has bent over? To not even see them whether they are bent over because of low self-esteem, because of lack of self-confidence, because of feeling of not being worthy, or whether they are bent over because of back-breaking work, when do we fail to give life and instead end up draining life from those around us? And yet we follow one 
who shows us a different way. And so if we are disciples of the Jesus who sees the one who is bent over, if we are disciples of a Jesus who empowers people to live in the fullest confidence, pride, and the very best version of themselves, if we are disciples of a Jesus who dismantles systems of oppression that perpetuate backbending work, if we are disciples of a life giving Jesus and not a life-draining Jesus, then let us once again today draw in the work of drawing that circle wide and being part of healing for all. Let the healing come. Thanks be to God.